Hi, this is Paisley, and I just wanted to add a quick intro to this podcast since while I was editing it, I realized that this is the one-year anniversary of the first time the podcast aired. I actually recorded the first episode New Year's Day 2018, but by the time it was edited and published, it came out on January 20th. So we have reached a year, and thanks for sticking with me. Hope we've gotten some new listeners since then, and... It happens to be that this episode is a little bit special. We've got a special guest on, but it was entirely unintentional. I didn't actually realize that it was the anniversary until just now. So enjoy. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Team West Covina, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend podcast. I'm your host Paisley and today is Saturday, January 19th, 2019. This is episode 11 of the podcast and we're discussing the episode, I'm Going to the Beach with Josh and His Friends, Season 1, Episode 9. Today for the first time we have a special guest, Harrison Chute from the Bagels After Midnight YouTube channel, which also covers Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And it's highly recommended if you somehow missed it. He has a ton of videos over there. Uh, I thought we'd just introduce Harrison to our listeners uh, to start out. Uh, I have a few questions for you. Uh, How did you first find out about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and what made you watch the show? Oh, man. So I think it was in 2016 uh, or maybe 2015, like late 2015. And I saw it on a bench ad or, or a bus bench ad in Burbank. Um, and it was the poster of her holding the balloon. Um, that's sort of iconic. I guess they only really made one poster for season one, but it's the... Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it, it doesn't give the best first impression, as I think a lot of people can attest to. Um, and so I, I just thought, oh, that's just some weird thing. I, I didn't really watch the CW, so I didn't quite understand its original programming approach. Not that this is even characteristic of it generally, but, um, you know, I just thought, oh, that's not going to last. Um, and then later I saw an article in Vanity Fair, so somebody must have linked it on Twitter, because I'm not necessarily a Vanity Fair reader, um, and it was called 13 Reasons We Love White Josh, Craziest Girlfriend's Adorable Evolved Bro, um, and this is an article from October 2016, and it just talks, it's a, it's one of those, like, slideshow articles that just, you click and, um, it gives you a new picture of why Joe, and a, a little caption saying, like, oh, this is why, like, oh, he loves, he has, like, a strange, um, like they highlighted his uh, line in episode seven, I think, about uh, Josh's cargo shorts or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was funny. And, you know, I, I think they probably mentioned that uh, Josh Chan is this Asian love interest. And so, you know, as an Asian guy, I that was sort of that definitely piqued my interest in that sort of shallow way but it's you know i i watched selfie i don't know if anybody remembers that show on abc with john Cho. i didn't see it but i saw commercials for it and i know it didn't last no. very long but people had high hopes for it it wasn't great um it had karen gillen and uh, david harewood so it's actually a pretty good cast but uh you know i i just i ended up watching it just because of that you know representation but um and so crazy girlfriend was like you know what i gave that a shot i will give this a shot and it was on netflix yeah, that, that actually helped me a lot, too. That's kind of where I found it first, even though I'd seen the commercials. Yeah, it's interesting that when you don't have too much representation, you end up kind of having to uh, go with whatever you got, even if the material isn't great. But, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and I don't hear a lot of people say they got into Crazy Ex-Girlfriend through White Josh. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
And so a lot of people know you from the Bagels After Midnight channel. What prompted you to make that? Ooh, so I, you know, I've been podcasting since, um, I believe, 2010. And so I, I watch something and then I just have this sort of solipsistic desire to just express my opinions about it. But I was pretty much done with podcasting by the end of 2015 or 2016. I had done like 100 episodes of something. And I said, I'm done with podcasting and media criticism. And I watched Crazy Girlfriend and I just, I just couldn't get it out of my head. It was just so new and different and exciting. And the questions that I was asking myself and sort of working through in my mind were not the usual kinds of questions that I ever imagined I'd be interested in. Like, who is Endgame, Greg or Ja? You know, like that's so, um, that was so new to me. Um, and so I just felt like I... Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not new to a lot of us. Right, but. yeah. Um, and so I, I just felt like I needed to channel that in, in the in the usual manner. And so I reached out to a friend and I was like, hey, do you want to start a podcast with me? I got an awesome title for it. I was very proud of the title, Vagals After Midnight. Um, and she said, I, you know, I haven't really seen the show. So I said, okay, um, I'll, I'll make some YouTube videos. And I, I think I'd made like one or two sort of, you know, quote unquote video essays on a different channel about movies. Uh, so I was, I was pretty much used to that and like I I was very confident in my critical voice I suppose um, so it, it, it was sort of natural that sounds great um, I know I heard about the videos long before I'd actually met you um, in person I think I watched them the summer before we actually all met in LA uh -huh. so I think I'd seen them all by the time I actually met <laughs> you guys yeah that's that's interesting were you surprised by the response to your videos? Because by the time I found them, pretty much everyone seemed to know about them, inclu including the creators. Yeah, I was very surprised. Um, because as I said, I've, I've been podcasting for like, you know, five years, and I hadn't really gotten a response. For me, like, uh, if if an episode of a podcast reached like triple digits in downloads or listens, that was like huge, and that doesn't really happen. Um, and so I, when I started to see like views in the thousands, I was like really quite taken aback. And I started to like really think about why that was happening in terms of the way YouTube suggests videos in the right-hand panel and, and tags and metadata and things like that. And also, I just think that I, I came in at a good time because after season two or, or towards the end of season two and afterward is when I feel like there was this big boom of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend fan content, podcasts like Crazy Ex-Boyfriends, which was the first one. Um, it only ran for about three episodes, and then there was Crazy Ex-Girlfriends. I, I do think Bunchkins was there before, um, and I think they helped me promote a little bit. It almost feels like ancient history now. I can't hardly remember. Yeah, Bunch, Bunchkins has been great at promoting, you know, a number of podcasts and fan art and fan works. I, I you know, I feel like that actually really helps people find all of us because, uh, you know, she's got a, a big audience there. So, like, in that space, you know, post-season two, I feel like it was, there wasn't a lot of sort of commentary about the show from fans, but there was already an audience that was very connected and they, they have certain infrastructures, like they have the Reddit subreddit, I guess, and um, Facebook groups and things like that. So a uh, very receptive audience already. And, and yes, uh, the show creators as well, which was, you know, just, just wild. Gabriel Ruiz was the first to comment on one of those videos, and that was just awesome. That was great. I actually may have printed out her comment and Rachel's and put it in a little frame, but no, no, I didn't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, the first time that happens, that's definitely a surprise. Um, I don't think I realized Gabrielle was the first. That's really exciting, and so everybody discovered it from there. 
And especially uh, being a guy coming to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, how has it changed or evolved your views on women, men, feminism, uh, all the topics that they cover in the show, both in a broad cultural sense and on a personal level? I am both loath to admit, but also proud to say that Crazy Ex-Girlfriend changed pretty much everything about my views on gender relations and feminism. And I'd say I loathe because I was 24 uh, when I saw Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and had this sort of eye-opening experience. And I, I think that guys probably just assume that they're already there or expect better of themselves. But it's, it, it's great, actually, I think, in another sense, because this is a work of art um, that has that sort of educational power. And that was very exciting to me as an aspiring storyteller. You know, to be able to see a woman's story from a woman's perspective, both behind the camera and in the text itself. I think I've always just said that beforehand um, and, and sort of understood that as an academic concept of like, oh, you know, it would be better if women, uh, or rather, it would be better if we paid more attention to women's stories. And, you know, that would help us be better feminists as men. Um, but to actually see and to actually work through those narratives, the there's just a different approach to it. I mean, to make a sort of weird, gross analogy, it's like the way Patty Jenkins and Zack Snyder film Wonder Woman's body in uh, Wonder Woman and Justice League. Like, it's just, it's a different approach. It's a different lens. And with this show, like, I never, there are just certain storylines that I would never think of, character behaviors that I have sort of not, or, or rather, behaviors in people that I have let slip by my radar because um, I'm just not culturally attuned to see them, almost. There's, there's new voices here. I mean, I, I guess I'm not really being specific, but uh, just basically, uh, it's just, it's changed so much, and that's why I'm so thankful for the show. Yeah, absolutely. And being that there are two female creators and, you know, female show runners and also, you know, like a lot of the writers are female, but they also, you know, have some male writers as well. I think it's it's just a high percentage of women working on the show. And that definitely makes a huge difference because you can have something that's about a woman, but it might be written by a man in, in other contexts. So this has been this has been great for that. And when not doing Crazy Ex-Girlfriend stuff, what else is your world about? And where can people find you or your work online? Now, I would like to say that my life is entirely Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because I am certainly somebody who appreciates that sort of devotion in podcasters and commentators. But um, this show was actually quite a departure for my interests. Um, you know, the podcast that I mentioned before that I quit was all about science fiction. Uh, and that's kind of where my headspace is at, which actually dovetailed pretty nicely with Crazy's Girlfriend, because on the season one commentary, Aline Brosh McKenna points out that Rachel has a kind of mind for sci-fi. And I think that that influence or, um, you know, broad sort of uh, philosophical take on storytelling is, is evident in the show in terms of uh, world building um, and things like that. And so, yeah, unfortunately, with Bagels After Midnight, decidedly in the rear view, I've been podcasting again about science fiction uh, and also general politics and social issues on uh, questions we don't have answers with comic book expert Donovan Grant. And we recently did an episode with Paisley that went very well. And uh, I'm also, like Paisley, a creative type. And so I've been dedicating as much free time as I can to writing sci-fi. Um, so you can find me on delightfultides.com, although there's really there's, there's a dearth of content on there right now. But um, I hopefully 2019 is the year that turns everything around. Although you, Paisley, or as you know, that's what I said about last year. So who knows? Um, I will put all of that in the show notes so people can find Thank the you. links. 
And so with that, I think we can jump right into the episode. Uh, As I said, this is I'm Going to the Beach with Josh and His Friends. Very uh, memorable episode. This one aired on January 25th, 2016. And it was written by Dan Greger and Doug Mand. So Dan Greger, Rachel Bloom's husband, of course. And it was directed by Kenny Ortega. And uh, the IMDb synopsis says, Attempting to cozy up to Josh's friends, Rebecca rents a party bus for a trip to the beach. Meanwhile, Paula becomes fed up with Rebecca, Daryl decides to crash the party, and Rebecca's web of lies begin to unravel. And as always, there's a spoiler warning. Uh, We may be discussing plot points from any episode that's aired so far. There are actually some interesting connections back to season four here. so. So, beginning of the episode, we see... Rebecca at the movie called Cancer Crew. She's coming out alone. Uh, I was kind of wondering if anybody knows if the Cancer Crew is spoofing any real movies. I feel like we've seen that kind of trope before, but I'm not a big movie buff, so I don't know if that is uh, if there are specific movies they might be parroting there. You know, it's been a while that I've seen season one, of course, um, now that we're mired in the fourth, and I, I'd forgotten just kind of how edgy the comedy used to be. I, I don't know if it's necessarily the same in that regard but i was like god this that's really kind of right on the edge there i mean it, it, it's really funny but like the idea that i mean just the line that the the unseen character says um thank you cancer for bringing us all together i mean it's it's kind of brilliant and also kind of kind of cringy but it's i feel like it's a nice spoof on like that that sort of like i don't almost like 90s era like friendship movies with freddie prince jr or something yeah, it was great. I, I, didn't, I hadn't paid that much attention to it until I rewatched it. Uh, but we see Rebecca come out, and we can tell, you know, she's all alone. She's just been to the movies by herself, and there's all these people who went uh, with other people, friends, relationships, all of that. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys, any of our listeners, go to the movies alone. I, I have done it in past years, and uh, I've I've kind of gotten used to it, actually. it's You, you might feel a little weird starting out because our society isn't, they don't really know how to approach that sometimes as far as somebody going to the movies alone or eating at a restaurant alone. Uh, I've even had to go to conventions alone at at certain points or conferences. But (laughs) sometimes you just get into a period where you won't get to do anything if you don't get comfortable doing it alone. You know, sometimes people can come with you, sometimes they can't. Or you might have an interest that is totally different from your friends. And if you want to do it, it's you know, you've kind of got to take the initiative. Harrison, have you ever had experience with that, you know, going places alone? Uh, When I was younger, I would never go to the movie theater alone, probably mostly because of logistics, just like before I could drive, it was, it would, I don't know, I I would never ask my parents to just take me to the movies or something like that. Um, I'd always call up a friend, hey, you want to go see The Dark Knight again, I guess? Um, But uh, now as an adult, and also I moved away, like far, far away, so I don't really have I had to kind of make new friends, and um, I'm just, I'm cool with it. I I love going to the movie theaters alone, but it is always kind of awkward walking out and just feeling like everybody's kind of looking at you, kind of like, what's this guy doing alone? Yeah, definitely, or especially if it's like a premiere night or something, you know, it's like the first night, And but I, I actually have to say, I do kind of have fun going to the movies alone sometimes, too, because sometimes you really just want to go see a movie, then go back and, you know, get back to whatever you were doing, whereas if you've got a friend with you, then, you know, it ends up being a whole social afternoon, but yeah, it, it can it can be fun, for sure. But Rebecca is obviously having a hard time with it, especially when she sees uh, Josh's crew, has also gone to this movie, but in a big group. 
And as they're sitting around talking, we see that Greg already feels differently from his friends. He's suggesting they go to the Getty Museum in L.A. instead of the beach this year, but everyone overrules him. And we can see that Greg is kind of starting to outgrow them in some ways. He's known these guys since high school, and, you know, Greg wants to grow more than these other people do. They seem more content where they're at. Yeah, which is, I mean, right there in the his his suggestion, the the Getty in L.A. Like, why? Yeah, I mean, Rebecca would probably go with him, but she'd be the only one. And the guys ask, uh, "What was that?" After Valencia invites Rebecca to the beach, and it feels like kind of a classic example of how many guys <laughs> don't recognize female frenemies or the kind of interactions that girls might have with each other. Mm -hmm. It's kind of similar to when Greg asked, why are their voices so high when Valencia and Rebecca were interacting in the grocery store in episode two? Um, And this time they know something is strange and out of character, but they can't quite figure out what or where Valencia's motives lie. They're just a little suspicious of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I never really thought about that in terms of like what what the purpose of their sort of not understanding was. I just figured it was for the audience benefit. And then again, I am a guy. So I was just like, oh, yeah, why are they doing that? But it's I mean, it's pretty evident. Yeah. And, and have you ever seen examples of female frenemies um, in your own life? Have you seen guys be frenemies with each other? Uh, my younger sister had a lot of drama throughout high school and even college with frenemies. And, you know, that's pretty rough. Like I I didn't have a lot of drama with my friends. It was kind of just like a probably traditional, like, you know, you have these close friends and then you just sort of drift away over the years. Um, there was really only one person who it, it actually came to drama and that was that was it. And then we just went our separate ways and it was like awkward. But no, I mean, among my like limited stable of female friends pre, um, pre-post-college, I guess, um, I never really got like... Sh- she would talk about her other friends and be like, oh, I don't know if we're still buddies, but it, I, it never quite got to where there was that sort of like Shakespearean scheming. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, that's one of the rough parts of being a girl, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had, you felt that you've had been in these sorts of situations? Yeah, and it kind of ebbs and flows, and it's, it's difficult because you're trying to navigate not just that relationship, but also, you know, all of the other friendships that connect all of you together. <laughs> But we, we actually have a whole song about frenemies. Uh, women got to stick together. Uh, I think Valencia looks great here, actually. She's got, you know, a great dress on, great hair. Um, Gabrielle's pretty beautiful. I liked the song fine the first time, but I feel like I'm actually enjoying it and appreciating it even more on rewatches. It's kind of this wonderful tongue-in-cheek song. Um, and it goes back to a lot of the things we talked about when covering Josh's ex-girlfriend is really cool. Uh, Valencia just doesn't know how to have female friends. <laughs> She's used to girls being jealous of her or competing with her, and she kind of expects to have to be protective and defensive when it comes to her relationship with Josh. So often this kind of makes her come off like a bitch, and while she does have that side in her completely independently of Josh, she's also not wrong that dating a guy that's popular in high school, um, there's always that possibility that she could lose him. Um, So I don't know if you're familiar at all with the band Paramore, but... um... Uh, the lead singer Haley Williams has this or they have a song called Misery Business which is all about like competing for a guy and like she calls the other girl a whore and she and this was like 2006 or something and in, in her recent tour she's like yeah we're just not going to do that song anymore like it just hasn't aged um, and I feel like Women Gotta Stick Together is such an interesting artifact now when you look back at Valencia's character and I think there probably was some issue with it 
for fans or for some fans back in the day. I don't know necessarily because of the text of the song itself, because it's just so obviously satirical. Um, but I think it's kind of that like undue hatred toward Valencia that it might cultivate in the viewer. Like, oh my God, what a bitch. Like, I don't want to be wallowing in that energy. But I think that I, I just feel like this one might have been a little bit contentious, but I've always really liked it. It's pretty funny. Um, and I think that's a good point, the whole um, slut shaming thing, um, because satirically we, we hear that in Women Gotta Stick Together. Um, uh, most of the insults kind of fit into two different categories, and it kind of gives us an idea of where Valencia is coming from. One of them is slut shaming. Um, you know, we've got lines like Ashley drops to her knees and uh, girls who make choices of that nature are threatening to Valencia. Um, she implies Caitlin has STDs, probably because Valencia believes she sleeps with a higher number of people than average, and that's also threatening to her. Um, and then turning two friends against each other by outing that one slept with the other's boyfriend, so trying to get society to shun the girl because she fears her own boyfriend cheating. So we definitely hear a lot of that. Um, and the other category is um, surrounding beauty and appearance. She's always criticizing those who aren't tall and thin like her. Uh, we also know from the Thanksgiving episode that Valencia has been starving herself since 1998. <laughs> and at the end of the song, she actually puts the two categories together, calling them all fat sluts. <laughs> but it is interesting because it kind of, if you really look at it, you can see where Valencia's insecurities are coming from. You know, it's one of those two things that seem to make her uncomfortable. Yeah, and this it's interesting that plot-wise, this song is sort of, uh, gosh, uh, springboarded by these, this encounter with Rebecca. Um, and so, you know, how, in, in what ways is she threatened by Rebecca? Because I feel like, she, I don't know, like everybody's always talking about how beautiful Valencia is, but you don't really get a lot of that sort of walla walla for Rebecca. So I feel like, you know, what is it exactly? What, what maybe Rebecca is sort of this new kind of woman uh, in a way that she, she can't really be called a fat slut, that she's not really competing on that level. She is this sort of pure child who is coming forth and she you can't really figure her out. Like she's very enigmatic, of course, because she's lying to everybody. And I think every character kind of has a sense for that, except for Josh. And so this episode is definitely her trying to figure that out. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, you see a lot of foils where uh, if Valencia has the beauty thing that uh, Rebecca doesn't quite feel she lives up to um, as far as body type and body image. But then Rebecca being so smart and going to Harvard, um, you know, that really blows Valencia out of the water because she hasn't really had to deal with that directly in a woman before, from what we can tell. Um, and the other interesting thing is that we now know Valencia's backstory with Father Bra. <laughs> yes. And I think it's kind of interesting. Maybe part of the reason she was so afraid of losing Josh was because she was projecting her own affair onto him, thinking that if she were moved to cheat on Josh, he could be moved to cheat on her. And in a weird way, it would be karma. And Valencia is superstitious, as we <laughs> see with her takes on ghosts and seances. Right. Um, and I, But I feel like sort of counter to that there's always this sort of um righteousness of uh, anybody's love story that like well if you're meant to be then you are meant to be so it wouldn't really be comeuppance if you end up with whoever you're supposed to be with and that's certainly something rebecca shares in yeah definitely um and i'm valencia and father bra they were actually very compelling they they sold that pretty well in oh, season gosh. four i really like that yeah i don't one episode and but for some reason it just fit it just worked I've known a couple different girls that have had this hard outer shell like Valencia, and they've trusted very few women, um, but usually with good reason, unfortunately. A lot of the time, though, they're projecting this onto other women because deep down they have a gut feeling that they can't trust their own boyfriend. Okay. 
And it's easier to put the blame onto women who might be interested in him than to place responsibility with their partner, who was, after all, the one to actually agree to the commitment and make promises to remain monogamous. Basically, if they have a boyfriend they can trust, it won't matter how many women express interest because he has the power to decline. It's interesting that they place the responsibility on the woman often because they, if they don't, they'd have to face that reality that their boyfriend couldn't be trusted. Huh. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, and, you know, Valencia, like, she, I guess it, it should be obvious, but yeah, she doesn't have a lot of female friends. I mean, she says that in episode two. Um, you know, she hangs out with Josh and his friends. Um, and so I, I think that there's not really a lot of explicit commentary about what that does to female psychology i suppose but i think that that you know that would have an effect it's like if guys only hang out with guys like their attitudes about uh women especially are going to be sort of vulnerable to certain external influence you know that is sort of patriarchal uh in nature um and so for women like you know when you said that you know you've you've known women who have sort of this hard exterior right i i mean my only reference there is like fictional women but sometimes you have the sort of tomboy archetype who's like cooking and cleaning and dresses no that's girl stuff and who's very that sort of like you know anti you know stereotypical female but it kind of comes off as like you know not ideal um usually written by men anyway so there you go yeah that's true and you just don't get as wide a range of perspectives if you're you know only hanging out with guy friends or only hanging out with female friends yeah we also hear in that song, um, Denise Martinez is mentioned, and I'm still wondering, what's the story there? Will we find out more details? Uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is really good at bringing back minor character references, like Susie Reynolds, the <laughs> senator. It would kind of be a missed opportunity if they didn't kind of return to that um, backstory at some point. Even though Valencia doesn't have a lot of close friends, she kind of knows everybody, and obviously these these music videos are not are, are figurative to some degree but you kind of get the sense that she would know everybody around town or whether these people were all from her high school class or something but uh yeah there, there was that um that rivalry that you know is all smiles <laughs> this very cute moment yeah she has to find some way of interacting with women so and i also just wanted to address what someone on reddit asked about this episode a while ago they were questioning how Valencia is here with women versus her emerging bisexuality later and if it was contradictory. So to go from hating women to wanting to be with them. It's kind of interesting. I, I have to say uh, Catnip, who is my Valencia, so to speak, she was actually the same way. Even though she was aware of her bisexuality much earlier, she still had that massive territory thing with oh. other girls when she was dating guys. What often happened is that if she crushed on a girl that way, she would give her a pass. But with <laughs> other girls, she was still territorial and suspicious. Wow. Um, I hope that helps explain Valencia's character development a little. I mean, it's true that the writers probably didn't intend for Valencia to be bisexual until later on. She wasn't even supposed to be as big a part of the show as she turned out to be. But I think it still works within the world of West Covina. You know, I was thinking about that. At what point was Valencia supposed to have stopped being in the show? It couldn't have been before the end of season one, right? I doubt it. I don't know if they ever said for sure, but I, I got the impression that they kind of wanted to do this, you know, longer arc with her, play out the triangle, and then Valencia would go away, except that she didn't. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of interesting to go back and kind of think about all these quasi-retcons. I don't know about the bisexuality one. I think that's still, that still holds up. But with Hector, I mean, there's a moment where uh, Valencia, oh, she says, let's, let's have Rebecca 
come on and Hector, you know, contradicts her. And he's like, no, we can't do that. And I was like, whoa, Hector, <laughs> like, careful. But uh, they hadn't quite decided that that what that relationship would be yet. Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely seen a lot of relationship changes um, as we go along here. And and this episode is great for that because it's such a group ensemble episode and you see everybody interact with everybody. Going into the next scene, Rebecca is trying to think up games to bring on the beach trip. Uh, Scrabble, Mad Libs, Boggle, Sudoku, Fraction, Flashcards. <laughs> is that even a game? <laughs> Apparently it is to her. But she's got this whole awkward nerd thing going on and you can tell she really doesn't know how to interact with friends in a group setting. She's probably rarely had the experience. It's actually almost like she never outgrew that... Um, birthday party personality oh. when she was a kid you know she was kind of trying to run that party in a way that was um not exactly the smoothest and she's still bringing that into her adult interactions <laughs> yeah i mean who are her friends like before the girl squad really i mean or paula i guess um was it just audra <laughs> oh that would be sad <laughs> Well, and, you know, she had a kind of protector reputation, too. We learned, uh, like, in middle school or high school, you know, she had some problems with that, and she had to, like, ruin another girl's reputation just to keep her oh, own. Oh, yeah. I also love it in this scene when Paula calls Valencia Vaseline. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then we see Daryl at the office trying to tag along with Rebecca to the beach, um, mirroring Rebecca trying to tag along with Josh's crew. And then Rebecca uses Daryl's party bus idea. She even tells Daryl, you don't have to try that hard to get people to like you. Yes. So some part of her is self-aware of her own behavior, but kind of in denial about it. I mean, just like in the very first episode when she's talking to Daryl saying that, you know, don't don't pin your hopes all in one person thinking Daryl's talking about Stacy when he's actually talking about his daughter. You know, she has done that throughout the entire series. In fact, even just the episode that aired uh, the night before we recorded this podcast, I Can Work With You, I think it was called in season four. She she does the same thing when she's talking to Daryl. She kind of makes it sound like it's him, but she's actually talking about her um, in relation to Hetty. Yeah, this it's such an interesting relationship to think about because I feel like it's, it isn't one that is often at the forefront of my mind, but it's they're a good yin and yang in terms of like uh, where they are in their lives and figuring things out. Um, and that's so interesting because they are technically the sort of boss and employee relationship. I mean, when when Daryl is first introduced in the first episode, you're like, all right, so this is like kind of the Michael Scott character. Um, and he's just going to be sort of this goofy boss. And I think it's this, probably this episode that really starts to turn that around. Because he's kind of come into her social group at that point then, however, unexpectedly. Yes. <laughs> and I think that that's such a such an, a critical part of this uh, of the story and especially for his character going forward and in this scene too he's just so brilliant I mean that I think this is where you start to get the sense that this is going to be an extremely awkward episode just based on how Rebecca's behaving um, that sort of denial and the the conversations that they get into where she's like you know she's already assuming that she's a part of this friend group when she hasn't quite gotten there yet um, and she's speaking for the group, saying that, oh, no, we can't have another one. Like, it's, this is not going well. Fake it till you make it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and as uh, as we move into the next scene, we've got the I Have Friends clapping music in the background <laughs> as they get on the party bus. There's so many musical callbacks that when we get little stuff in the background, I'll try to mention it because there's things you just won't catch until you rewatch a couple times. They They definitely do that a lot. I think it's great, too, when they have... Because I, I feel like it's not all the time, but when they have that sort of meaningful reprise, but it also, the, the sort of the quality of the music also underscores what's going on. So 
Rebecca's bouncing around talking about how this party bus has all the latest features and she's noting things that are extremely out of date, like a standard definition television and off-brand colon things. Um, and it's this, you know, sort of staccato song. It, it works. Yeah, it, it definitely works. And it, it kind of lets you know how the characters are feeling. And sometimes the callbacks are almost subconscious and it makes you feel, you know, whatever you felt in the original scene, but you don't even realize it sometimes. And we get to know a little bit more about the other characters as well. And I feel like Greg is such a type here. He's all craft beer and new <laughs> indie bands that most people haven't heard of yet. I feel like I know like, you know, at least five or six people like that in real life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I don't know if the show is asking us to be more sympathetic with Greg than Josh, for example, because his tastes are a sort of pretentious in this moment um, and also isolated like that. Those are very specific things that he is doing and they're not really great for a, a group setting, you know? Well, and they're not as California, which is something Rachel Bloom brings up a lot. You know, Greg, Greg has a, a different vibe than than southern california absolutely although the getty would be kind of an interesting place to hang out like it's it's still my list it's still on my list to do in la so yeah definitely we also see in this episode heather meets valencia for the first time on the party bus which is interesting to think about now since they eventually become really good friends and i don't think we ever would have expected that here right well that uh, that is kind of the thing running through this episode and i think that's the mark of a great tv show is when older episodes take on additional layers of meaning um, and, and for here, like with so many of the relationships, you just, you, it's so interesting to think about how they change along certain stratified lines that like Heather is Rebecca's ally, you know, she's not just her friend. And so this new girl is like, now we're going like by the, the very metrics laid down by women got to stick together. Heather and Valencia cannot be friends because there's just certain almost political lines that she can't cross. Um, and everybody's dating heterosexually and so this just like um, yes it's Josh and Valencia and Greg and Heather and the extent to which those things are shaken up is like is unpredictable and, and Daryl and White Josh as well. Yeah and Rebecca did not see that one coming for sure um, but she's also no. really thrown by uh, Greg and Heather dating and she kind of marvels at the irony of the two of them only meeting because they both came to Rebecca's house party <laughs> but at the same time, it's not really ironic at all. It, it does feel more contrived because Greg just followed Rebecca's lead in trying to date the friend of the girl he really wants to date. Uh, Rebecca tried to date Greg, the friend of the guy she really wants to date. So it's kind of funny that he judged her for doing it because he ended up doing exactly the same thing. Well, I think if they had pushed on this moment a little bit more, it might have strained at our ability to empathize with Rebecca because she is sort of shocked because she's not the center of his world anymore in a way that we sort of read into Josh's character in season one that he sort of maintains these two relationships um, and now Greg is slipping away and not only is he doing that he's, he's doing with a person who gets him more more so or, or, or seems to or, or that they are more compatible because they're just so distant from from the sort of sunny California lifestyle yeah that's so true it's not that he doesn't like Heather but um, there were other things going on subconsciously which is made clear when Heather calls him out still having feelings for Rebecca later on. So then we move over to Y. Joe, and we learn that he was a fat kid growing up, and this apparently shaped his experiences later. I, I do know some people who went through that same thing, and they have a different perspective on life than those who've never gone through that. But it also seems to go hand in hand with bullying. I'm not sure if it's specifically being overweight or if it's just that he got 
bullied for it and he knows how that feels and so he approaches people differently in his everyday life or if it really is like a body image thing as well that he dealt with because he was a very different body type as a kid yeah and it's interesting i mean this scene is interesting i think both for the character but also for rebecca um i mean for why josh like you know that really explains why he's so easygoing you know he's already had to go through probably the darkest time in his life and he's come out um as a survivor of that um, and it's interesting because you hear me say that and it sounds sort of after school, especially, um, and the way they approach that in the show, like Rebecca is just not, she's just doesn't care. And that's so interesting. I mean, that is that sort of Seinfeldian, like, uh, it's always sunny, like apathy, um, of like, you know, this character just is kind of a jerk sometimes, but, um, and I think they really play that up in this moment, the way that she, uh, not only the way that she blows him off in this really sort of uncouth manner, uh, but also White Joe's response, which is just to say, um, like, he leaves the conversation without saying, I'm leaving the conversation. He's, he he gives her some deniability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's not subtle about it at all. Um, she doesn't even try. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of the time throughout the series, you see somebody um, being vulnerable and giving Rebecca an opening to delve deeper into, uh, you know, the psychology <laughs> of their lives. And she just she just misses that cue every time. <laughs> as late as uh, AJ in season four. Um, but I think you made a really good point that uh, Y. Joe may have already been through the darkest time in his life. Uh, he, well, and I've actually seen this in real life too, where somebody who gets bullied for whatever reason as a kid, if they are later, um, you know, LGBTQ or on the spectrum somewhere, you know, they might be more comfortable coming out because they've already been through bullying. They've already dealt with that sort of um, antagonism. And because we, we do see that Y. Joe is very comfortable in his sexuality and he's, you know, he tells Daryl later on straight up that he's not going to hide. Um, he's he's open with his relationships. And this is actually the uh, the episode where Daryl meets White Josh for the first time. Uh, and I think it's funny that Daryl was already a fan of him because apparently White Josh was a trainer at his gym. It's just such a ex- great exchange here. I mean, I love when he says, that's Josh Wilson. And Rebecca says, no, his name is White <laughs> Josh. Like, she's just That's so, so true. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's so great because... Um, you know, Daryl, you know, we're definitely getting more of his interiority here. And um, we also see the the kind of direct effect of White Josh's um, upbringing that he mentions, um, that he's just, you know, everybody else has, sees Daryl come on and he's like sweating and he's talking about like how he, you know, his car broke down and people called him Magnum P.I. And he just, he doesn't quite get it. He seems very strange. He's Rebecca's boss. Um, he's an older guy. He's got bean dip. Very specific uh, choice of food there. There's no chips around or anything. But White Josh didn't see any of that. But, you know, even if he did, you know, you kind of get the impression that might, he might have just had the same reaction of like, oh, a new guy is on. Great. Like, let's have a conversation. Yeah, definitely. Which is so refreshing. So, well, Rebecca's a little thrown. Uh, Josh is also a little thrown here. Uh, he's kind of stunned and unsettled by the fact that Rebecca and Greg hooked up as soon as she moved to town and neither one of them ever mentioned it to him. Meanwhile, Greg points out that Josh never told them he dated Rebecca at camp years ago. So in both cases, Rebecca is a secret, more or less, for different reasons. And she has to keep pretending that she only has platonic feelings for Josh in the meantime. And then the other guys she tries to date don't do anything for her. It's such a terrible feeling for all of your partners to keep you a secret to some extent, even if it's for wildly different reasons. The seemingly carefree, effortless, out-in-the-open relationship that Josh and Valencia have, that's completely foreign to Rebecca. We know she was a huge secret when it came to Robert, too, and she and Nathaniel were a secret later on. 
Rebecca, who hopes to get even a morsel of the validation other people get by being in these public official relationships, ends up getting cast as the secret over and over again. Um, in her case, perhaps this is because when this played out in her parents' relationship, the woman who was the secret, quote unquote, won. She wound up with Silas in the end. So maybe Rebecca has a subconscious impression that she needs to play that role, at least at first, in order to win the guy in question. Oh, very interesting. I mean, the, the way I approach that is sort of metatextual in terms of I've watched a lot of contemporary television going into Crazy Ex-Girlfriend like Breaking Bad, Dexter, uh, Mad Men, uh, Homeland, the first season. And, and the, the thread that sort of ties all those shows together is that there's a main character, a white guy, who has a secret and he can't let that secret get out. And I just thought that that was so strange that all these TV shows would, would sort of share that. Um, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend kind of does too. But um, for me going in, I was like, oh, well, that's just, you know, TV characters have to have secrets that are revealed over time. Um, but I think there's a stronger textual um, backing for that here because, you know, especially looking back now um, after season three, like Rebecca almost doesn't have any more secrets left. And, you know, is when when I say that, it almost sounds like, is that kind of violating? You know, are there a certain, you know, she's been so open, but that, has, that hasn't always been up to her. So, yeah, I'd be curious to see what you or, you know, what do you think about that? Like, is it OK um, for her to have secrets or is it better that she gets these things out? I think it's always, you know, coming back to striking that balance, because when we first meet her, I mean, she's even keeping secrets from Paula, who is someone, you know, she should be able to trust and open up with and, and believe that Paula has her best interest at heart. But then by the time we get to season four, we actually see her being so open. Uh, you know, she's even, you know, p talking about putting her uh, jail picture up on dating sites and things like that. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes, you know, then she's just shooting herself in the foot. Uh, not to say that she wouldn't have that conversation eventually, but it's knowing when to reveal secrets that I think is really important um, in building that relationship and letting them get to know you as a person before you divulge, you know, maybe not the most flattering aspects of yourself. It's not saying that you won't ever divulge them, but it's making sure that you do them at the right time so that people don't see that as their first impression. Yeah. And, and, and as you were mentioning before, there's definitely a sort of internal aspect to her own relationship to these secrets. And, and what does that mean for her psychology? Is it really healthy? To, to keep these things from other people. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I always kind of think like about the end game of the show at the end of season four. Um, and I wonder if it's kind of already happened in terms of like the process being so new that a character has secrets and then kind of uh, gets, gets a grasp on clear communication with other people. Um, I feel like Crazy's Girlfriend gets some criticism sometimes for the bluntness of its dialogue. Um, I especially think of, a, of an exchange in season two, I think, between Paula and Scott, where Scott says, I don't care whose fault it is, I just feel really bad right now. Like, that's not something that I've ever heard, but it's something that you should hear, especially from men, just sort of laying it out there, being direct. Um, you know, clear, healthy communication is, like, um, so important in relationships. Uh, and I think that that's, that's something that the show has not spotlighted, but made made a focus of its, of its um, text, I suppose. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I heard uh, Rachel Bloom actually talk about almost the opposite thing on a recent podcast that she did. Uh, she talks about how she she herself doesn't really have any boundaries. And <laughs> when she 
says something publicly, she's always thinking about, okay, how will other people react to this? Would other people want me to say this, especially if it involves them? And uh, so I definitely think balance is, is probably the best call. Uh, people tend to, you know, be one way or the other. But speaking of secrets, uh, Valencia calls Josh out for being jealous. And Josh says, I just don't like secrets, okay? Um, you know, I'm like, Sure, buddy. He's the one who was trying to keep his camp relationship with Rebecca on the down low. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, Josh is much more focused on his ongoing underlying competition with Greg. Uh, he says, Greg, so above it all, I'm Greg. I'm better than everybody else. I read books and listen to the talking radio station. <laughs> <I love that laughs> And Josh seems to feel that Greg is a snob, and it appears to hit him in a sensitive spot, uh, causing Josh to feel badly about his own intelligent level, like he could never live up to Greg in that way. Uh, similar to uh, Valencia and Rebecca, just maybe not to such an extreme level. Um, and Greg later confirms all this by calling Josh dumb. Uh, so being around Greg seems to make Josh feel badly about himself and vice versa. And Greg sees Josh as the guy who gets all the girls. And if he could win over a girl that Josh had been with, it would validate him in a new way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, they, it is, it's funny how um, Greg and Josh are such opposites. And it's hard to say that they're really close friends just because they don't have a lot of screen time together, even in the first season. Um, and especially not in season four, at least as far as we've seen. But um, they are definitely opposites. And, and Josh is somebody who, as we'll find out in, in the next episode, is somebody who's insecure about his... Um, intelligence and Greg comes along and he's very studious and and they don't quite match exactly archetypes in terms of like Greg is a nerd and Josh is a jock I mean he is kind of but I never really got a sense for what sport he played if he was like a footballer or something uh, or anything like that oh that's a good question yeah I guess we're not sure I guess he was like the dance captain so that's almost um like a really progressive kind of jock I guess Oh, yeah, for sure. But he definitely was. Uh, Greg, I mean, he's talked about sort of masculinity before in Settle for Me and things like that. Um, and here, here's this guy who is, um, you know, sort of, I, I mean, you can't say traditionally handsome, but in the in the sort of uh, logic of the show, certainly. Um, and getting all the girls. And yeah, I mean, that's that's just a recipe for disaster. And uh, this their conflict definitely, it, you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely been building up. Uh, and it's interesting that the girls attribute the arguments to the guys fighting over Rebecca, while the guys attribute it to the competition and rivalry and resentment that they have with each other. I mean, it's plausible to me that this has been going on with Josh and Greg ever since they grew up together. It seems like the competition between them drives both guys to go after Rebecca, perhaps with more motivation than they otherwise would have. You know, Josh is basically with Valencia, but then he, he you know, he, he gets uh, all into Twitter when he finds out that, uh, that, that Greg has some history there, too. Uh, we know that Rebecca's projecting onto Josh, but, you know, what are Josh and Greg projecting onto Rebecca? Uh, it's kind of like whoever she picks is the top dog in the friend group or something. It always comes back to, you know, their own identity and status more than solely their connection to another person, which was, you know, kind of one of the reasons why I questioned the Greg-Rebecca relationship in, in early uh, episodes. Uh, not every guy is going to do what these guys are doing and not every girl is going to do what the girls are doing. Um, you know, they might do what the opposite gender has done here. But it, it is interesting to see that, um, you know, the girls attribute it to um, guys fighting over a girl and the guys are really the competition is between the two of right. them. Right, um, which I, I don't really know about, but I I have a feeling, I mean, at least in this specific example, like they're not going to be fighting over Rebecca 
in in terms of um, what they actually say because they're both with other girls and so that would be like really weird um but at the same time like but both greg and josh view rebecca as this sort of idea and a kind of platonic uh ideal sort of uh figure of 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 a woman um because nobody knows who she is um and so they've sort of had to ascribe that narrative for her um and she has just become this sort of um, abstract thought but also, uh, and this point is, is so um, crucial, I think, that you made in terms of, like, I think it cuts right at the heart of um, a question that goes unspoken in this episode, but is addressed um, in, in the story itself subsequently, which is, you know, Rebecca is, the question of the episode is whether or not Rebecca can be a part of this group, um, at least at some point. But I, the, the second question is, are these people even friends with each other? Because I think that they kind of all view each other as ideas or, or abstracted to some degree. Um, obviously, Josh and Valencia don't have the best modes of communication, and Greg and Josh have let this sort of rivalry, you know, just um, fizzle for a while. Um, and then you got White Josh and Daryl, who are just on the sidelines for this whole sequence, which is pretty great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question about whether uh, the long-term friends are actually friends with each other. Uh, I never really thought about it that way, but you know, we know that White Josh kind of has some opinions on on his friends that you know come out later on, and uh, yeah, none of them are are too well matched. And Valencia really isn't friends with any of these people except for Josh. And even then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a big question there since uh, they're they're definitely keeping a lot from each other. So going into the next scene with Valencia and Josh, uh, she says to him, this has nothing to do with Greg. This has everything to do with your summer camp stalker who won't go away. And Josh says, I'm just friends with her. I'm not doing anything. And Valencia says, that's the problem. What do you think she means by this? You know, Valencia doesn't, certainly doesn't see the, the, the utility in being Rebecca's friend just yet. Um, she just really wants her to go away, and I think rightfully expects Josh to do the the banishing, and he just doesn't do it. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if she's arguing that uh, you know he shouldn't even be friends with her, or if she's saying, "Hey, there's more going on under the surface. It's not just friends. You know, this is not okay." Uh, I actually laughed out loud when Heather said to Greg, "There's so much drama. I don't like it." <laughs> of course, we hear her say multiple times later that she loves drama. Uh, but I think in this case, because Heather is actually on a date with Greg here, she's saying she doesn't like it on a personal level when it affects her. Uh, she tells Greg, "I don't bring my baggage with me to every date," and seems offended that he literally brought his Rebecca. <laughs> and even Josh counts his baggage because of how it affects their dating lives. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that this is a date. I, I never really thought about it in that terms, but she, that is what she says, whether or not she, I guess, maybe, maybe or not, whether or not she considers it a date, I guess. But um, that is kind of interesting that it, it does seem kind of like an imposition to have all these strangers there and, and Rebecca, of course. But, um, you know, I thought about this one as a potential retcon, too, but I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, Heather is such, a, such an observer that drama is fine when she's not involved, but, you know, now it's like she has to see um, this, this involving her. Yeah, that's so true, because when, for example, when she's in the hotel room with Calvin and Paula and Rebecca, you know, she's just watching and she loves that. <laughs> yes, that's such a great moment. We also learn that Heather isn't exclusive with Greg. She's also seeing a guy named Zeke who he doesn't even know about. And so she seems to be balancing that, you know, as far as keeping her options open, not expecting anything, not putting too much pressure on the relationship. Yeah, you know, this is the first show that I've seen that I feel like really dealt with open relationships in a very frank manner. Um, But as we see, it does kind of still hurt people's feelings. So I'm not sure, like, 
I was kind of surprised at how normal it is to do that because I've I mean I've never dated so I just don't know but you know in your experience well is that- you know the other thing too is it, it depends on the stage of the relationship I think it's different because Greg and Heather haven't established themselves as exclusive yet they're just dating so until somebody actually clarifies that they're exclusive and they call each other boyfriend and girlfriend um, you know she's allowed to date other people because it's still casual later on I think we see them deal with commitment a little bit more or lack thereof on Greg's part yeah but gosh I mean how many people can you possibly meet? I mean, that you'd be dating multiple people at once. That's so shocking to me. I know. As a demisexual, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, uh, it, it doesn't happen very often. That's, that's for sure. But I guess for some people, it, yeah, they meet people they like all the time. So uh, it's a matter of deciding. Rebecca, at this point, things are starting to spiral. And uh, we see her call Paula from the bathroom yet again. Uh, she did it in the Thanksgiving episode. And now we see her calling Paula from the party bus. And Josh says to Valencia about Greg, he brought a date and some weird music. You can't mess with classic beach day and expect nothing to happen. It's like he's never seen the butterfly effect. (laughs) And I feel like this is an equally smart and dumb comment from Josh (laughs) at the same time. I mean, it's a pretty nuanced metaphor to like connect those two things together. But at the same time, the concept is like superstitions guys have around sports like having to wear their favorite shirt so that their team will win. <laughs> yeah. But we finally see why Josh is so touchy about keeping everything the same. When I first saw the episode years ago, I was like, you know, Josh is normally so carefree and chill. Why is he being so controlling all of a sudden? Short of trying to keep the two girls apart, it wasn't something I really expected on the first watch. But now it's like, you know, they've been doing this beach trip since they were 16 years old. And Josh is the person who wants everything to stay the same as it was in high school because that's when he peaked. He wants to keep everything about the tradition the same, down to the smallest details. If even one thing is different, Josh thinks the experience will cease to have the same feel. He kind of accepts Rebecca and her party bus into it because she too is someone who was part of his life when he was 16. He associates her with the fun summer now. And I also want to mention again that this episode was written by Dan Greger and Doug Mand, and we can't forget they followed the same theme when writing Most Likely to Murder, their movie. The lead character in that, played by Adam Pally, is also a guy who peaked in high school and is having trouble adjusting to all the changes that have happened since. So this seems to be a theme that they have been interested in exploring for some time now. Yeah, you know, and it, I'm sure, and it's been a while that I've seen that movie, but I'm sure the sort of terminology of, like, man-child comes up, but doesn't in this show, which is pretty much exactly what you would describe Josh as, although Josh is definitely not as big of a jerk as Adam Pally's character in Most Likely to Murder. But yeah, that's a, that's such a great connection to make, and um, it is interesting that uh, it's the same writers. Yeah, I, I found that interesting, too, because I know some of us, you know, if we have certain themes that have uh, shown up in our own lives or that have been something we want to explore. It kind of comes up in maybe a few different works that we've done. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting connection to make having seen that movie and and gone to um, all those premiere uh, dates that they did when they took it around the country. Greg, meanwhile, seems to believe that Josh is really controlling and bossy underneath the laid back attitude. He may just be saying this because he's mad at him, but outside of Josh trying to separate Rebecca and Valencia and trying to keep things the same as they were in high school, Do we think Josh is genuinely laid back or that he has control issues? Yeah, you know, I think it might just be laziness that you just sort of read as laid back, uh, laid backness because he is that sort of 
California bro, but I always just think of that image of him waking up on the bubble wrap in season two in the office and being like, geez, uh, this guy, you know, like he's like, you wouldn't call that laid back. It's just like he never looked for an actual place to sleep. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, once I thought about the high school connection, then I I started to question, well, does he really have control issues or is he trying to keep everything the same just because, you know, he he has this issue with wanting to go back to high school? I think we'll have to watch for it, you know, in later episodes and maybe maybe some of the listeners will have an idea on uh, on that and if there's other moments where Josh is controlling. Yeah, Josh is such a his character and his characterization is so interesting because he is first and foremost playing a role in the story and in Rebecca's life as this sort of object of affection. But he breaks away from that, or or more so Rebecca does. And so where does that leave him? I feel like maybe more so than any other character, his characterization has been sort of the most spotty, which is unfortunate, but it's, I, I think if you sort of go over it with a, a fine tooth comb, if that's the phrase, I you know. Yeah, actually, for me, I think it was Nathaniel was the, the patchiest as far as like consistency of character and things like that. With Josh, I, I think a lot of it was projection because, you know, first Rebecca was doing the projection, but Josh, unlike a lot of other people, he actually seemed to buy into the projection that, you know, she had of him. Like she actually, he actually kind of liked how she saw him yeah. and, uh, you know, whether or not he could actually live up to it. He really appreciated where she was coming from. Kind of uh, an unfortunate match made in heaven. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Greg also talks about how Josh can get away with things because he's likable. And this is definitely one of those qualities that give a a person social power. It's true that people who are charming or likable in some way are often excused or given the benefit of the doubt, whereas everyone else might not be. And it's interesting that Greg feels this way about Josh because now that we've seen the season four episode, I Can Work With You, uh, we find out that Valencia felt the same way about Hector being likable. Greg and Valencia both realize they can come off as abrasive to other people and are not as inherently likable as Josh and Hector. Yeah, and Greg and Valencia are also two people who clearly have self-esteem issues, and so they would certainly sort of read, you know, an absence of self-esteem issues into others who are um, sort of subconsciously adversarial. So that's, yeah, that's a very interesting moment of, uh, of character psychology. Paula, when she's talking to Rebecca on the phone, she insists that Rebecca be honest with her and herself that she's in love with Josh. Being in denial just isn't helping. I think it's good that Paula stood firm on this because she can't help Rebecca if Rebecca isn't open about how she's truly feeling. Rebecca's been trying to stay upbeat and knows that admitting the worst will open up a wound that will let the pain in. But at the same time, it'll be a relief, like ceasing to hold her breath to come clean with Paula and actually be able to talk about how she's really feeling. Yeah, you know, I was I was kind of thinking about where this might have come from with the character of Paula in terms of her arc, because, um, you know, this is episode nine and we might not remember, but this was after the winter break, I believe, for season one. And the way that episode eight ends on California Christmas time, you don't get a lot of you don't really get a great sense of where characters are because they're just all together singing this really happy song and so like with Paula like she had just done like gone above and beyond the call of duty to to cover for Rebecca's lies go you know pretending to be the British Jew with her mother um she didn't seem too upset about that but um I think that that would definitely be like a kind of final straw yeah that's true because you know she already knows Rebecca's lying to her mom to see her lying to herself I think that's one step too far 
And interestingly, uh, Valencia says that Greg and Josh uh, have never fought like this until today, even though they've been friends since kindergarten. And she indicates that Rebecca is the reason. So do we believe that this is new um, or that Josh and Greg have had issues for some time? And then the guys make up so fast. Is this real or not real? My, my opinion um, is that just because they haven't fought about it doesn't mean that they that it hasn't been boiling under the surface. I've often seen guys be bad at confrontation, um, actually less likely to confront someone about an issue than girls. It's unlikely they would have directly talked about it before until Rebecca brought it to a head. But this is also one of those good effects that Rebecca's had on the West Covinians. Greg and Josh needed to get it out in the open. And now that we've seen the interactions, or rather lack thereof, between Josh and Greg since Greg returned to West Covina in season four, uh, it seems like there's definite history that needs to be cleared up because they haven't really spoken to each other at this point in season four, and I would not be at all surprised if they have a talk or address these issues before the series ends. Yeah, I'd be really curious to see where, you know, if at all, if they address that because um, they are supposed to be this sort of, um, a, a very specific type of friendship too, which is that sort of childhood. Well, we've just been friends forever because we were around each other our entire lives. And they do genuinely seem upset or at least josh does when uh, greg leaves in, in the beginning of season two um but yeah i mean I, I would definitely agree with you i think that this is you know they've always had issues they just probably have never fought about it and that is absolutely consistent with my experience um and i think that it's just you know as you say like guys just don't they're they're, they're not good at confrontation um and yet they always believe that you know there's that sort of mythology about the difference between guys and girls that guys will like fight each other with their fists and girls will like you know scheme when in fact no i mean guys just they just won't talk about that i think they'll probably try to pass it off like oh that's no big deal you know whatever i'm cool um and that's really not not great at all yeah i feel like um even in relationships like a lot of the time the girl is the one to do the confronting even if it's not um pushy or anything like she'll be the one to bring up an issue or something like that um it's it's common anyway Yes, she'll bring up the issue and then the guy will minimize and say it's not really an issue and, you know, gaslight. Yeah, unfortunately that happens way too often. So at this point, you know, we've had so many things happen in this episode already and then we get to the the point where it's like, oh, Daryl, why did, why did he open his mouth? <laughs> Uh, why didn't he ask Rebecca privately regarding why she changed the story about moving to West Covina? Um, he says that she had to tell him if she wanted him to keep it a secret, but he really should have read the room. <laughs> I'm guessing he probably takes it too personally here. I mean, we're still seeing very early season one, Daryl. He probably feels like Rebecca left him out of the loop and his immediate priority is to find out why. I really love this moment too, especially, it's only for a split second. Daryl stands up and says, you know, he sort of corrects the record. They cut back to Rebecca and just for a split second, her face is like, I did it. I lied. Like you can see the sort of self-satisfied, like, I don't know, indignation or something on her face. And then she immediately just drops into sheer terror. And so, yes, I think Daryl should have definitely read the room. But, uh, you know, in the long run, this worked out. It did. It did. Surprisingly, you know, honesty or uh, partial honesty uh, worked out in her favor for the most part. Um, I think she did a remarkably good job explaining herself when she's pushed up against the wall and everyone is demanding to know the real reason she moved to West Covina. And what she said wasn't a lie, it just omitted the Josh part. It's fortunate for her that like 
the story is just so wild that any one part of it is also wild. So she can sort of compartmentalize and say, oh, just the moving here was, you know, that's that's why I didn't want to tell anybody. So, yeah. Yeah, she goes back to her mental health. And so eventually, uh, you know, even though everyone else stalks out, Josh does take this moment alone with uh, Rebecca. And he says to her, I've spent my whole life defending this town to people like Greg. Do you have any idea how proud I am to be the one who told you about this place? And he also says, I'm so happy that you're in town and I don't think that you're crazy at all. And this is such a big deal, especially after Valencia just called her crazy in this episode. Um, This is some of the deepest validation that Rebecca has gotten so far. Yeah, and I think plot-wise, it it makes sense as a capstone on Josh's arc in terms of his conflict with Greg. Like, that's all about, you know, well, Greg as a character is all about, this place is not great, I am settling for it. Gosh, what is his song called in... uh episode four I can't remember but um you know I think Josh is definitely reading that sort of like you know Josh is a guy who tried to leave and he came back and so he's like he is West Covina and West Covina is him and so Greg would would sort of represent this um superiority that's an excellent point actually that Josh did leave and we don't think of the Josh that we know as the kind of person to leave but you know he was probably a very different person in New York trying to figure everything out and get his own footing. And yeah, I mean, like he's much more comfortable with it. And I think he always has been more comfortable with West Covina, but he's gone through the whole arc already and he's made his peace and he's home and he knows for sure that that's where he wants to be now. Whereas Greg just feels so stuck and he hasn't gotten to go through what that's like yet. Yeah, and I think that that's okay for both. I don't think the show is judging either character, at least not here, because um, Josh is, you know, especially in season two, he is <laughs> judged a little bit by the text of the show. But I mean, for Rebecca in this instance, like, do you think it's okay um, that this, it, it's so interesting because, you know, this is an emotional victory and we feel her come through something, but it's not, she's still lying, you know? So what do you think about, what do you make of that? Is it healthy for I her? think it's it's healthy for her because it gives her a taste of what it's like to open up and confide in people, even if she didn't confide the whole truth. She did confide some of the truth. And she thinks when, you know, Josh talks to her that he's going to be really angry and um, confused and suspicious, but he actually reacts in a completely different way than she expects. And, you know, having Josh and Paula later on react either positively or supportively to what Rebecca's confessing hopefully helps her feel like she can be more honest in the long run. You know, it takes her a long time to get to that point, but, you know, every time somebody makes you feel like it's okay, that's, that's going to be a help. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a great point because um, the process by which you heal is not going to be easy. And, and when you sort of enter a discourse with somebody who is in need of help, you, I don't know, it's not, like, I, probably the initial temptation is to to contradict certain bad feelings or, or denial of self or self-esteem problems and just be like, no, you're good, you're fine. Um, and in this case, you, you don't want Josh to enable her um, interest in him as as he does but I think there's a greater utility in the moment of as you say sort of um, giving her that taste of self-acceptance um, and so you know it's just an indication that this is going to be a process and she's going to have to 
Like, ideally, there is a path by which this is the beginning and she learns to accept herself. But obviously, that's not how it goes. Yeah, I mean, th- that's true, because as great as it is to get the self-acceptance, then it does, you know, enable to her to think that Josh is giving her more than he actually is. Uh, but he, too, is kind of confused at this point. So he's trying to figure out how he feels about Rebecca and Valencia as well. Uh, and, and, you know, as great as it is what he said to her, he also tells Rebecca to keep this combo between us. So he's going right back to the secrets. But then at the end, you know, we see Rebecca admit to Paula that she loves Josh and Paula hugs her because she knows how painful it is to feel that way. And that is just such a great moment between the two best friends. Uh, you know, they really get each other there. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about, I mean, this is episode nine, it was so drawn out that she was keeping this from Paula, even though Paula is... Exactly. And Paula says to Rebecca, don't ever lie to me again. And of course, now that we've seen the whole series, it's like, oh dear, you know, she's going to lie to her over and over and over again. And it takes her, you know, quite a few years to get to that point. You know, it's interesting. Um, that is, that was the breaking point for them in, at the end of season three, I, I think, um, when they're in White Feather arguing. But there was also, when I think about like the epic Paula Rebecca uh, arguments, um, there was also the one in the middle of season two with the, the squad party. Um, and that was more of a matter of like Rebecca just not being attentive, which I don't know, is sort of similar to lying. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the one in second season, I think it was a little bit of an age thing, which was never a problem with Rebecca and Paula. But when you bring all these other girls in, um, especially because, you know, I don't think they've really had, um, you know, that age gap in friendships before. Uh, but they, they really did work it out in the end. But the the lying one is, is so intensely between the, the two of them. And, and Rebecca and Paula and the rest of the Frantopia is kind of why friendships in this show are just so much more compelling to me than uh, romantic relationships. Because that, that to me is, I think I saw something on Twitter recently where somebody was talking about the way that Americans express love versus in other countries and that we really only have one kind. I mean, there's familial and also romantic, but you don't have women friends as a guy and stuff. And as an adult, you don't really make friends. Um, And that's unfortunate because I think that you need to be able to express yourself in all these different ways. And also, Chris's girlfriend to me is so much about the production of a community and a society. Um, And that to me is hinges more on friendships because obviously not everybody's going to be in a relationship or not all of them at once. Um, But they're all going to be friends, as we see with Nathaniel in the most recent uh, aired episode. And the process by which that happens is always fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, friendships, theoretically, and it doesn't always work out this way, but theoretically, they would be more consistent than um, relationships, because you never know if you're going to break up, or there's normally more contention within relationships. And those really good friends will be with you, you know, hopefully for decades, and they'll see you plenty through plenty of relationships. But yeah, it's true that American society doesn't necessarily value that as much, and the relationship always kind of takes priority. But I think emotionally, you can have just as deep a bond, you know, with a best friend as you would with a partner. Yeah, and this show kind of blurs those lines anyway, in terms of like, can Rebecca and Greg be friends when they're not dating and, and all that kind of stuff? Now, are we going to explore that or not? (laughs) We'll have to see where it goes. We don't know yet. But at the end of this episode, uh, we've got that nice little tag with Hector. And I think it's hilarious that he missed the beach trip because he was sleeping for 15 hours. 
And if this hadn't happened, he would have met Heather here on the party bus. But he would have met her as the girl that Greg was dating, which would be a very, very different uh, experience. Yeah. Speaking of the butterfly effect, I wonder if that would have, you know, ruptured their potential. I mean, can you remember the first time they actually meet? Because I can't. Oh, that's a really good question. I, re- I remember, I mean, I remember them talking at the, you know, Rebecca's failed wedding. Um, but I'm trying to think if they met before that, because the girls started hanging out in season two. But Hector, I mean, was Hector around that much? Gosh, yeah, I don't know. Um think so she already was saying she was listening to his podcast at that wedding right yeah so she must i mean she knew of him uh maybe she met him before that but uh yeah at this point i do think it's different though because like you know if he comes in and he knows well you'd think it would be different because he sees that greg has already dated heather you know he might feel a little weird about dating her too but josh and greg are already dealing with that so why not (laughs) hector You know, well, there is that sort of interesting, they give verbiage to the idea of like relationship as almost ownership in terms of like you already channed all over her. Well, you gregged her. That, I mean, I wonder what you think about that in terms of like, um, is dating that sort of, is is there, you know, where does that sort of possession um, exist in in those lines? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it it really depends. You know, I'm going to go relative on this one. It really depends on the kinds of relationships that all these people had with each other. And I think that differs in situations because, you know, you can have a relationship where, you know, they weren't really that into each other and, uh, you know, getting upset about somebody else dating that person. Well, you know, I mean, if you guys weren't supposed to be together and you don't have the strong connection you know, maybe you got to let it go. But then if you've got somebody who's just devastated over someone and thought they were the love of their lives, and then, you know, somebody else real close to them ends up, you know, like that gets a little harder. I I think it just depends on the situation and how everyone feels and the timing of it all. I think with Greg and Josh, you know, neither of them had something established with Rebecca at this point. Not really. I mean, Josh was technically her boyfriend for a couple months, but that was a very long time ago. And so neither one of them really has a quote-unquote claim to her at this point. And I think that's maybe what's uh, making them a little uh, twitchy under the surface. Yeah, absolutely. That's more territory stuff, you know, with Valencia and her girl frenemies and Greg and Josh with Rebecca. It's interesting. Yeah, and I think that's part of what makes the episode so cringeworthy. This is one of the um, uh, top top most cringeworthy episodes, I think, if you pull the fans. Uh, this, this one comes up all the time. One of my favorites. I mean, I'm really glad that you invited me on to talk about it because just watching it again was such a joy. This is probably the episode that I've watched the most. I mean, it's one of the older ones for sure, but so it's just been around for longer, but I... I loved it as soon as I saw it, and it certainly holds up because, I, you know, it's a bottle episode. But it, what's interesting here is that, and maybe this is the case in other shows, but Rebecca provides the bottle because she, you know, steals the party bus from Daryl and she puts all these people in this confined space and doesn't, you know, certainly through no fault, you can't really fault her for not anticipating the, the conflicts that have been brewing all along, but she does sort of jumpstart the, uh, the conflicts by going onto that pole and giving a rather... Uh, uh, rather skilled uh, performance. Hey, I, that was actually a body double. Did Have you seen the pictures from that? Yeah, which is interesting. You, I can tell now because the hair is different. That's the only detail that, that's really different. Yeah, I didn't know that until more recently. I think the first time I saw the episode, I had no idea. I assumed it was Rachel. Uh, but yeah, they, they got somebody to, to fill in for her there. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that is, I mean, talk about cringy. That is like great back stuff. It's like, oh, God. Yeah, for everyone on the bus. <laughs> yes, oh, the reaction shots are just priceless. So, you know, 
what a, what a way to end. Um, we've reached the end of the episode <laughs> analysis. Um, I'm going to go on and do some of the different segments after this, but I want to say a huge thank you to Harrison Shoot from Bagels After Midnight for guesting on Team West Covina. And oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. This was so much fun. And remind people of where they can find you one more time. Uh, yes. Um, QNoAnswers.com for my primary podcast. I guess you can also follow me on Twitter at Harrison Shoot. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash team West Covina. You can do so for as little as $2 a month or make a one-time donation. There are different tiers and the tiers have different rewards as well. So head on over there and check it out. If you're able to leave a review for the podcast, that's equally helpful. Just get on your podcast app of choice and leave a few stars, drop a few sentences. Let me know what you think. It really does help us gain a lot more listeners. So next we're going to take a look at the different segments on Team West Covina. The first one is Who Done It, which is how many times Rebecca initiates plans to get Josh and how many times Paula instigates them. In this one, Rebecca pole dances for Josh's attention, and that's pretty much it as far as either one of them instigating on their terms. So in this episode, Rebecca initiates once, Paula initiates zero, and the total so far is Rebecca has initiated 11 times and Paul has initiated 7. So Rebecca's still a ways ahead at this point. Our Ring of Fire segment talks about the fire reference in each episode. In this one, Daryl says that some people in a car flipped a lit cigarette at him and he caught it. Our Suicide Watch segment discusses any little hints that the creators give before that fateful episode where Rebecca tries to commit suicide. And we do have one in this particular episode. Daryl says about his bean dip, if you people don't eat this, I'm going to kill myself. And we see throughout this whole episode that Daryl's paralleling with Rebecca in a number of ways. Our Booze Clues segment takes a look at the indications that Greg is an alcoholic early on before it was officially talked about in the show. In this episode, Greg criticizes the party bus and Rebecca shoots back with, there's lots of stuff on there you'll like, like alcohol. At this point, none of Greg's friends really see it as a problem or an issue yet. They just sort of tease him about it. In our Nailed It segment, we take a look at the color of Rebecca's nail polish and how it indicates the emotion she's going through at the moment. In this episode, she famously wears bright yellow nail polish all throughout. Uh, we don't see her do this very often, and in this case, it seems to signify just beachiness, you know, as far as the yellow goes, but also that, like, extreme, over-the-top kind of behavior that we see her exhibit here. She really wants to be noticed. And this is the kind of nail polish that stands out more than the average. Our music notes segment takes a look at the song parodies and what they're based on or inspired by. Our first song of the episode is Women Gotta Stick Together. And it's great how they take cliche song phrases like women gotta stick together and women have the power to make a change and then juxtapose it with frenemies bullshit. And the combination is just so brilliant. According to Rachel Bloom on the Spotify commentary, they wanted to originally do a song called Women Are Not My Sisters, Women Are Not My Friends, which was more of a Disney villain type song. But apparently it wasn't funny. It was too on the nose. And Rachel confirms that Valencia is acting this way out of fear. She's thinking of women as threats. And in Rachel's opinion, that's not the right move, even though she was right about Rebecca. Our second song is the West Covina Reprise. 
Originally, the episode was going to have people in separate cars rather than a party bus, which is hard to picture. I kind of wonder how it would have played out with them not all in the same place. And it wasn't even going to be the episode where Rebecca admitted she loved Josh. Apparently, it just happened organically and worked really well. Rachel says that this song really showcases how Josh and Rebecca are children who want to live in the past, and that's what connects them. Instead of creating a new love song, they recreate West Covina, kind of a symbolic metaphor for recreating the past. So we have a couple main themes in this episode, first one being frenemies. And I took a look at some different definitions of frenemies because it really depends on what dictionary you go to. So here are some of the possible definitions. A person with whom one is friendly despite a fundamental dislike or rivalry. Or a person who combines the characteristics of a friend and an enemy. Urban Dictionary has a few as well. They say a person in your life, usually a friend, a friend, or a coworker that you get along with and enjoy overall company, but they'll cut you down with virtually any opportunity, sending mostly backhanded compliments or jabs your way. They always root for you to do good, but just not better than them. Another Urban Dictionary definition is someone who acts like your friend while having ulterior motives. We see Valencia being a frenemy to Rebecca in the beginning, only to take off the mask halfway through and call her out. We also see Rebecca being an unconscious frenemy because she doesn't seem to care about Josh's friends as people. She only sees them as stepping stones at this point. Yet on another level, it's important to her to fit in with them, not necessarily because she likes them individually, but because belonging with Josh's crew would give her a lot of validation and security after not feeling like she belongs anywhere. Being part of a group would really mean a lot to her. We also see the contrast to frenemies in Josh and Greg. They openly vie for control over their beach trip preferences, openly get angry with each other, and then just as easily let it go and presumably make up. I did just a little bit of research on frenemies for this episode. There's probably episodes that go into frenemies in even more detail, but a few different things. I was looking at an article on Psychology Today that talks about how someone who's a frenemy this person is part of your broader social circle and cutting this person out explicitly as a friend could be too socially risky for you. So that's part of the reason why people end up having them. It's sort of a situation where you might be mad at the person, not trust them, know they've insulted you, but you choose to stay frenemies because you don't want to be cut off by other people that you both know. Wendy Mogul, a psychologist, talks about a Jewish concept that relates to frenemies. Yetzer Hara stands for evil inclination. The rabbis say without it, there would be no marriages, no cities built, and no innovation because it's also a source of creativity, the juice that fuels our engines. There's a beautiful Talmudic story that says if you poke the Yetzirah's eyes out, there will be no fresh eggs. It's a strange metaphor, but it means that without it, there will be no novelty or invention. And this kind of makes me think of Rebecca and Audra Levine, how their mothers pushed them to compete, and this did, for better or worse, make them successful people in terms of career and finances. It kind of sounds like frenemies might jar people out of their complacency. The Science of People website discusses ambivalent relationships, which frenemies falls under that category. So it's not out-and-out, toxic, obvious, negative connections. It's somewhere in between. And they say ambivalent relationships cause the most emotional strain, take the most energy, and are the most toxic. So we're talking about people who sometimes support you and hanging out with them is sometimes fun, but sometimes it's draining. You don't always know where you stand with this type of person. 
they can be excited for you but also jealous of you. And the Science of People goes on to say, psychologist Bert Uccino found that the more ambivalent relationships you have, the more likely you are to have higher rates of depression, stress, and dissatisfaction in your life. The interesting thing is, while they were discussing this in the context of frenemies, it also applies to Rebecca's relationship with Josh. She gets love kernels from him, genuine signs of encouragement and bonding, yet sometimes he does an about-face and lets her down. So definitely an ambivalent relationship. Josh is inconsistent and unclear, making the whole situation even more stressful for her. The second theme that comes up in this episode, we kind of circle back around to that fitting in versus belonging that we discussed on a previous podcast episode. Rebecca is trying so hard, too hard, to fit in, and it's the farthest thing from organically belonging. She's different from Josh and his crew. It's kind of just the nature of things. And the process of fitting in can be awkward and cringeworthy, as we painfully see here. Meanwhile, Josh wants Greg to fit in with his version of what the group should be, and pressures him to do so. He's even offended by the kind of beer Greg wants to bring. Although, the reason for wanting Greg to fit in is because Josh believes Greg comes off as, quote, better than everyone else, which clearly makes Josh feel insecure and bothered. If you ever wanted to demonstrate why fitting in is not worth it, just show the world this episode, pretty much. So our poll question from last episode was, who did you relate to the most in the California Christmas time episode? And 0% said Heather, 25% said Josh, 25% said Rebecca, and 50% said Greg. So that's a little encouraging to me, since I wasn't sure if I was the only one sympathizing with Greg in that situation. And this time around, I asked our guest, Harrison, to contribute a poll question. So he'd like to know, where would you take friends on a group hang? Beach? Art museum? Sad movie? Or, quote-unquote, Hispanic restaurant? Feel free to let us know on the Team West Covina Twitter. You can vote over there. And the podcast question of the week is, Greg complains that Josh is actually controlling and bossy underneath his laid-back attitude. Outside of Josh trying to separate Rebecca and Valencia and trying to keep things the same as they were in high school, do we think Josh is genuinely laid back or that he has control issues? You can participate in the discussion or reach out to the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. If you don't plan to join us for Acopian's Corner, thanks for listening. Okay, so welcome to Acopian's Corner. Today, I'm actually really getting into more of the storytelling aspect of what happened in my own situation that paralleled Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. This particular moment parallels Rebecca's party bus and her moment with Josh at the end when they bond over West Covina, and he says he's glad she moved there. So this journal entry takes place on 4th of July weekend, a number of years ago, and this is just the beginning part of what happened. After an emotional, hormonal six months, it finally happened. And what do I mean by it? Well, just about everything. There are certain events you simply don't believe will actually occur in real life, and then they do. I had high hopes for 4th of July weekend. However, I also worried that those hopes would be dashed, and at first that appeared to be the case. Our friend Beau visited us for three days, staying in Catnip and Cheetah's guest room. Catnip threw a party for tons of people due to his visit. Beau lives in the South as a gay man, which has been interesting to say the least. He loves exploring another part of the country that's more liberal and has offerings that just aren't available in his state. The weekend before, quite a few of our group went to the Pride Parade in the city. 
Some floats threw condoms out into the audience and Katniff got hit in the head with one. Surely there's no metaphor in that. At the pizza place afterwards, Tanko showed her this ad for an LGBTQ bar. It was on glossy cardstock. Katniff read the whole thing and looked very interested. Still holding on to the ad, she handed Tango the condom she picked up. Let's trade, Katniff suggested. There's not too many reasons why Tango would even need a condom as she's a lesbian, but she pocketed it and Katniff kept the lesbian bar ad. It was hard not to point and shout, Are you kidding me? Katniff loves getting things for free, so clearly she has no use for a condom. I turned up at Katniff and Cheetah's place early on Thursday, July 4th, excited that only five of us were going to Six Flags, Catnip, Bo, Lissa, Cheetah, and me. I haven't been to Six Flags in a few years, but I love it. It feels so classic and quintessentially summer. Of course, this reminds me of Raging Waters to some extent going to a theme park. Catnip and especially Cheetah get very sick on roller coasters, so they were reluctant to ride any at all. Bo, on the other hand, is obsessed with Six Flags. As a result, Bo and I ended up going on roller coasters together, but often would become separate from Catnip and Cheetah as they wandered the park. When we all four walked around getting snack food, Cheetah was surprisingly affectionate with Catnip. It was somewhat unusual. He'd poke her in the back or hit her in the shoulder with the map. He put his hands on her shoulders and Catnip asked him to massage them, but he refused. They mildly teased each other while he ate a snow cone and she tried a few bites, but wouldn't let him feed her. They even walked arm in arm together sometimes or held hands. That virtually never happens. Their banter isn't as crisp or fresh as ours, it's usually more placid and routine, but regardless, they know each other well. In one of the shops, Cheetah hugged Catnip. Catnip occasionally gets clingy, but it's not like Cheetah to be so openly affectionate with her in public. Catnip, on the other hand, has openly confessed to me that she likes appearing as a couple in public and wants to show that off, even though nothing's going on behind closed doors. I'd never been to the water park at Six Flags, but this time we went. Cheetah sported a t-shirt at first, but when we got to the water park itself, he took it off, saying that it was the only one he had, so it needed to be dry. Six Flags security wouldn't let us walk to the water park from the main park in our swimsuits, forcing us to get a second $20 locker. At first, Cheetah gave me his towel to wrap around my swimsuit-clad self, but the security guard said that wouldn't cut it. I wore his towel all the way back to our main locker. The water park itself was less than fun, though. The lazy river wasn't so lazy. We each had to take an individual tube down the stream, and because my tube sent me backwards down the current, I didn't see the fork in the river. The left side, where Cheetah and Bo had ended up, was placid. The right side, where I was being sent, had tons of little waterfalls in a row that stretched out an arc, designed to soak tubers. No freaking way. I tried to kick my way out of the current, but it was too strong, so I ended up ducking under the arch of the waterfalls, trying to stay floating through the space in between. I didn't want to emerge sopping wet. Bo and Cheetah were amused, but then I lost them entirely. As it turns out, Cheetah managed to go back for Catnip, who was last and far behind us. Bo caught up with me eventually but I didn't see Cheetah or Catnip the rest of the Lazy River ride. He helped her through it while I was left to fend for myself. Then we went to the wave pool and Catnip started clinging to him by the hand, making him drag her along in the water. Cheetah helped her float and they were a little touchy-feely in the pool. I climbed up the stairs in line for the family raft ride, but when I heard that only two or three people could ride per raft, and we had four, I said forget it because it looked like the ride would be too wet anyhow. You're going to walk all the way down this wooden tower in shame, Cheetah asked me. I'm okay with shame, I shot back. When the three of them emerged, I couldn't help but laugh as Cheetah strode over, sopping wet. He pointed at me. 
You, you were holding out on us. You knew how wet it was, he accused, and I pleaded the fifth. They decided to head back to the wave pool to get warm, and this time I didn't go in. I couldn't force myself to watch the way catnip was with him in that thing. I tried hard to keep it together, sitting on a slab of concrete and chilling under the sun. This, of course, reminds me of how clingy Valencia was with Josh and how she and Josh were very coupley around Rebecca and that it was just hard for her to watch. The Six Flags employees made us get a second locker because they didn't allow street clothes in the water park, but didn't allow swimsuits in the regular theme park. So renting an all-day locker in one place meant nothing. When Cheetah and I were the only ones by the lockers, he saw the look on my face and asked what was wrong. I said quietly, I didn't think this through. I wore my swimsuit under my clothes to get over to the water park, but now that I'm here and have to change into street clothes, I just realized I don't have uh, everything with me. Cheetah swallowed and took an extra second or two to respond. Is there any way you can just go without? I'm going to have to, I shook my head, rolling my eyes. We changed after dinner once we returned to the main lockers, and after that, Bo, Lissa, and I stood in line to ride my favorite roller coaster. I'd never ridden a roller coaster at night before, and it was pretty cool, but the line was long, and after a bit, Cheetah decided to head back to the car to sleep because, due to his crazy work schedule, he'd already been up for 48 hours straight, and little did he know it was only going to get worse. Catnip said she didn't care if he didn't watch the fireworks with her. She offered to walk back part of the way with him, but wanted to remain in the theme park and would meet us at the ride exit. By that point, it was almost nice to escape from them. Bo and Lissa were both fun to hang out with, and we started coming up with all these different ways to pose when the automatic camera took our picture on the coaster. Ultimately, we decided to have Bo strike a Madonna expression, hands framing his face in the middle, while Lissa and I did Vanna White poses on either side, winking and grinning cheesily. It was enormously hard to do on a roller coaster, but we all cracked up laughing. I was grateful to them for taking my mind off Cheetah and Catnip. My favorite coaster is always such a rush and gave me a second wind. Meanwhile, as Cheetah departed from Catnip and walked out to the parking lot, he realized that Catnip still had the keys to the car. We didn't have cell phones with us at Six Flags because of the rides, so we had no way of getting in touch with each other. Therefore, Cheetah ended up wandering around the perimeter of the theme park, sitting down to watch the fireworks alone. The rest of us were together, and we all sat down on the ground and enjoyed a spectacular show with extra loud booms that reverberated through the ground and up into my chest. I knew there was no point in wishing Cheetah and I could have watched fireworks together. It only would have led to a painful public display of affection towards catnip. Right before we left, the others were filling up water bottles via bubbler, so I pulled a quarter out of my pocket and gamely marched towards the turquoise pool by the front entrance. The double-decker carousel was at one end, and plump, bright marigolds surrounded the shimmering water. I'd mentioned it much earlier in the day, that every time I make a wish in the Six Flags pool, it comes true. So far, it's never failed me. Way back in middle school, I made a fervent wish that Mirax wouldn't have to move away. Plans had already been finalized, but somehow they fell through and she didn't have to move after all. Years later, she eventually relocated, but by that time Mirix and I had grown apart. More recently, I made a very general wish that I'd be happy, and then I entered into that three-year period of independence without focusing on romance. I moved to a metropolitan area and so many wonderful things happened. I was much happier than I'd been in the past during that time. I believe I wished for Lotus in that pool, too, and possibly other things. They all came true. 
I know it sounds fanciful, but that's what happened. Earlier in the day, I'd mentioned the pool's ability to grant wishes to catnip, sort of tongue-in-cheek-wise, but Cheetah overheard. While the others were filling their water bottles, I marched purposely up to the pool, still a little annoyed at the situation, but determined to take charge. I made a slightly more general wish about getting to have a real boyfriend. I didn't say that it needed to be a certain person, but I wanted to get together with a boy I liked. So I threw in my quarter. I hadn't told my friends where I was going, simply said I'd be right back, and darted across the way through the crowds to toss my coin in. Cheetah must have seen what I did, though, because when I returned, he went, Yay! When we arrived at Catnip's car, Lissa got into the back seat, and Catnip had volunteered to drive since Cheetah was so tired. I got into the back seat next, having landed a strategically placed middle spot. But Cheetah was putting stuff in the trunk, so Bo ended up climbing in after me on my other side. Cheetah went, Bo, I can ride in the back. Oh, it's okay, I don't mind, Bo drawled, aiming to please. He is the sweetest, most unassuming southern accent. It's kind of adorable. He's like a character from a sitcom or something, always saying inadvertently funny things and reacting with a little bit of wide-eyed innocence. By the time we got back to Catnip and Cheetah's place, I was noncommittal about staying. We'd dropped Lissa off already. Cheetah, however, was gung-ho, saying I looked tired and should stay, and it was no big deal, and he'd give me a visitor's pass. I sleepily walked out to my car to get my duffel bag, which had been packed just in case. I took my good sweet time because Lotus was texting me, and when I returned to the entrance of their townhouse, I saw Cheetah waiting for me on the inside stairs. Oh, I didn't know you were waiting, I said. He handed me a visitor's pass for overnight. Despite letting him corral me into staying, I still felt undecided and overtired. Lotus had been sending me a series of texts telling me she'd gotten massively drunk on whiskey and vodka, even though this was her first day on new meds. Those two things don't mix, and I was worried about her, especially when she stopped answering after a while. She joked that she was going to pass out, but knowing that she'd taken alcohol with new meds made it an actual possibility. Plus, she'd been having a hard time for a while. It wasn't like her to be a big drinker. It seemed like everyone was simply headed to bed anyhow, and I didn't think I'd be able to sleep until I knew if Lotus was okay. What if she actually passed out? I needed to get home and check on her. I didn't want anything bad to happen. So I sent Lotus a text that said I was coming home. In Catnip and Cheetah's living room, Catnip lied down on the couch, and when Cheetah came by, he lied on top of her back. What the crap? He's never done anything like that in front of me before. Bo was already in the guest room. So it wasn't too hard to open my mouth and be like, yeah, I'm going home. I gather up my stuff in a hurry, reach for my keys, and wait. Where are my keys? I always keep them in the top left pocket of my purse. I dig around in my purse, taking stuff out, but they're nowhere to be found. I didn't set them on the coffee table or anything. I'm sorry, I never do this. Maybe they're in the car and I left the car open, I suggest. I can't believe this is happening now when I just want to get out of there. Cheetah snaps to attention and goes running out to my car in the middle of the night when there's no reason for it. I was headed there myself. I follow Cheetah and Catnip follows me. He's already calling out to me as I run down the parking lot, across the dewy patch of grass that sections off visitor parking. They're here on the front seat. Can you get into the car, I ask, as I hurry up. He tries the doors. Locked. Oh my god, this is not happening. I've never locked my keys in the car before. It was not at all intentional, not even subconsciously. I had been grabbing my duffel bag and messenger bag from the back seat while also texting Lotus, trying to decide what to do, and had left my keys on the driver's seat but slammed the doors of the car without grabbing them. 
I'll drive you back to your house, Cheetah offered eagerly, putting his hand on my bare back. I felt defeated and overtired at this point. No, honestly, it's fine. She probably just went to bed, and that's why she's not answering. Lotus is a light sleeper, so I still expected her to text me back regardless, and I could give her a call if she had her phone on. But Cheetah insisted several more times, even going so far as to put his arm around my shoulders. You're worried, I can tell. He put both hands on my shoulders, directing me to one of their cars. I perked up a little at being unexpectedly alone with Cheetah, but also felt annoyed because I was just trying to escape from his opaque behavior, and this would make me sort of indebted to him. Cheetah seemed excited and enthused about being the hero, being needed. All his exhaustion appeared to have fled. I wasn't used to being unable to take care of myself, and it wasn't on purpose to get attention, but somehow the situation had turned into something that Katniss might have gotten herself into. And all of a sudden, there I was, alone in the car with Cheetah in the middle of the night. Driving to my house, which is about 15 or 20 minutes away, we were chatty, but not flirty or bantering. Cheetah said that when he was younger, he'd locked himself out of the car twice, and his dad put a magnetic key under the vehicle, but Cheetah couldn't find it. He was 18, and his dad grumbled when he got the call, but deep down would do anything for him, so he came and rescued his hapless son. "'Can I ask what's up with Lotus?' Cheetah glanced at me sideways. "'Yeah, but don't tell anyone,' I said. "'More secrets.' Cheetah tried to figure out the logistics of our little jaunt over. He said that Lotus or one of our friends could give me a ride over to my car the next day. He also said I could still stay overnight at their place. I'm too tired. I can't decide. You make the decision for me. Tell me what to do, I said. I simply couldn't process anymore. Cheetah considered and then outlined a logical idea. Well, the way I see it, you've got to ride to your car right now. You might want to check on Lotus, make sure she's all right, grab the spare car key, and come back over to sleep at our place. At this point, I'm a bit more invested and don't want to leave him, so I tentatively agree, depending on how Lotus is doing. Cheetah had brought along his key to my place, cleverly enough, so I could get in without waking Lotus. I ran upstairs and found her sleeping, but fine. I double-checked to see if she was okay, and she was. She'd slept off the drinking and felt calmer now. Cheetah's outside right now, I stage whisper exclaimed. I tried to explain the whole debacle in a nutshell, and that I needed to borrow her keys to get into my car. She told me where they were. Lotus was groggy from sleep and wanted to get back to it, so I grabbed her keys, locked the door, and joined Cheetah in the car again, relieved and a bit happier. As we drove down a neighborhood street, we saw two baby skunks ahead of us. I see other animals around here, but never skunks. Cheetah pulled off to the side of the road so we could watch them, and I wondered if he was delaying at all. It was only when a cop drove by that Cheetah went, Yeah, I don't have my driver's license on me, and I'm in my pajamas, so we should probably go. With everything else that's happened, this would be the night you get pulled over, I joked. As we drove out of my suburb, I asked, what does it say on your pajamas? It's an old pajama shirt I got for cheap, and I don't even know what it says. Catnip is always yelling at me to get rid of all my old pajama shirts and buy new ones, but I like the old ones because they're so soft, Cheetah told me. Feel how soft this is. It was late, and I was overtired, so I reached out and felt his shirt on the side of his upper arm, noting the softness. Well, as long as they're not stained or have holes in them, right? Actually, some of them have holes in them, Cheetah admitted, and we laughed. I teared up a little in the car, but he didn't see. Cheetah asked if I felt better now that I knew Lotus was safe, and I said sure, but wavered, vaguely indicating that there were other things bothering me, and then shook it off, telling him I was fine. 
While we were on the highway, Cheetah mentioned how he'd been up for over 48 hours because, in addition to his nighttime work schedule, he'd also had training at noon. Cheetah made some comment about how this was just one more thing in an already rough week of problems. He doesn't normally talk like that, so I asked him what else. Cheetah explained about Catnip, telling me that she'd been obsessed with the party, but doesn't understand his new work schedule yet. She has me keep answering the door for deliveries in the middle of the day when I'm supposed to be sleeping, he said. We've had furniture delivered and six or seven things for the party. I have trouble falling asleep at night to begin with, so I'd get up to sign for delivery, and then Catnip would call to see if it's arrived, and end up asking me, well, you're up, can you also do this for the party? She doesn't understand that I really have to sleep. Right now she's being kind of passive-aggressive, Cheetah confessed. I'm sorry, I told Cheetah. Maybe it'll calm down after the party? I think so. I can't remember how we got on this, but he and I joked around, saying, We have all the keys. We discussed escaping rather than returning to Catnip's place. We drive the car to somewhere, I can't remember where, and then for some reason we said it'd get towed and we'd be stranded. But then we'd have other adventures. I'm being really vague because I was half asleep at the time, but it was reminiscent of some of our texts about running off to Mexico. I didn't want the ride to end. But eventually we found ourselves in Catnip's driveway. We entered the living room and realized that Bo and Catnip were both asleep in their respective rooms. The house was dark and quiet. Cheetah told me that Bo sleeps with a fan on because he likes the noise, and suggested that I might feel more comfortable sleeping in the living room on the air mattress. Apparently it was brand new and he inflated it for me in record time. Cheetah moved the coffee table out of the way and set the air mattress in the center of the floor. He got me a sheet and we parachuted it onto the mattress. He also gave me a blanket, plus I'd brought my own blanket and pillow. Cheetah arranged a long body pillow to have under my head and handed me a clicker to turn the lamps on and off. I felt oddly taken care of. We were both whispering, trying not to make any noise. There was a tall silver ladder in the central area of their living room because they'd hung a bunch of decorations on their ceiling for the party. Due to their cathedral ceiling, this required a ladder. In front of that was my air mattress. Cheetah stood to just one side of the bottom rung, holding out his arms for a goodnight hug. I was so turned on by that point and confused that we ended up squeezing each other tightly. It was the first time we'd hugged alone since he fixed the computer keyboard at my house. Cheetah pivoted his shoulders back and forth as he hugged me, and it went on a bit longer than a normal hug. In these situations, even a few extra seconds can change the tone. Truth be told, I'm not sure how long it would have gone on, because all of a sudden, Cheetah tripped over the ladder behind him, and we went crashing to the ground, still wrapped in an embrace. For my own part, I'd been on solid ground without the least amount of tipsiness, but because his arms were locked around me, he ended up pulling me down with him. Cheetah and I landed on the air mattress, which miraculously broke our fall. It happened so fast that I can't recall exactly how we landed, but I believe it was on our sides, and somehow by the time we hit, our legs had become quite entangled or entwined with each other. His leg was over my leg, which was over his leg, and so on and so forth. Cheetah's arms were still holding me tightly, and one of mine was holding him. I instinctively hugged him to me while we cracked up laughing as quietly as possible. I blushed and put my face in his shoulder for a moment. Normally, two people in that situation would have scampered apart when they landed, but we didn't. Cheetah kept his arms around me, and for a moment I enjoyed the feeling of lying on the air mattress with our bodies pressed close. We were accidentally in bed together. Cheetah made a couple comments without moving from our position. As soon as I left the ladder in the living room, I knew something like that would happen, he said. He didn't apologize, though, or seem to feel ashamed. We might have made one or two more little comments about the kind of night we'd been having, one fiasco after another. 
Then we stared at each other in silence for a few moments, but long enough to give us both pause. Awkward. Significant. At long last, we reluctantly got up. Amazingly, this whole accidental collapse escapade is actually a scene from this book called The Summer I Became a Nerd, a YA novel that we're apparently emulating since we've experienced so many moments that happened in that novel. I never expected to add this one to the list, though. It's one of those things that only happens in books, but due to a long and complicated series of events, actually happened in real life. That's something I've seen before in fiction, movies, and TV shows, and I always thought it would be awesome to experience. In The Summer I Became a Nerd, Maddie runs into the comic book store, crashes into Logan, and they both end up in a heap on the floor. I mean, Catnip and Cheetah wouldn't normally have a ladder and air mattress in their living room, and we wouldn't typically be the only ones present. There were so many odd events that had to add up for that sitcom moment to occur. Cheetah got up and offered a hand to me. We moved a few steps away from the air mattress and the ladder, and surprisingly, after all that, he opened up his arms for a hug again. He wrapped his arms around me once more, so I did the same, looping them around his waist. Because he's so tall, I ended up resting my head on his chest. It felt so good to hug him freely for a few moments, and though it was relatively short, still felt cozier than a normal hug. When Cheetah finally pulled away, he said something I didn't totally catch, but I think it was, have good dreams. We still seemed to have a little trouble leaving each other, and I remember standing at the start of the hallway, looking towards the guest room and catnip's room, which are at the end. Cheetah stood facing me with his back to their doors. For some inexplicable reason, he reached out his right hand and patted the top of my head on the left side, or stroked my hair, or just left his hand there, I'm not sure. Again, I reacted instinctively because I literally couldn't control it anymore, naturally reaching my left hand up to rest on top of his. Be good, he said softly, and I couldn't figure out if it was a warning or parting words like saying goodnight. So I just whispered, okay. Did he mean keep my wits about me and don't give in to the sexual tension because of catnip? Did he mean don't go pursuing other people? Or, as Lotus said later, was he kind of telling himself to be good? We stared intensely at each other in the darkness for a few moments, and then he turned to head into the bedroom he shared with catnip, while I practically scooted into the bathroom to my right, mouthing, Oh my god, in the mirror. I needed a moment to just silently freak out. I settled down on the air mattress, knowing I probably wouldn't sleep. It was nice to have the living room to myself, though. I wasn't even bothered by the fact that he was in bed with catnip. I was surprised that the latter incident happened so soon after my Six Flags wish, as if that speeded things up. Early in the morning, I was vaguely conscious of Cheetah tiptoeing into the living room. He got an apple juice box from the fridge and obviously thought I was still asleep, because he hopped over my air mattress and closed the blinds so the sun didn't wake me up, keeping it dark. Clearly this was only for me since everybody else's door was closed. The next morning, I felt awkward and a little embarrassed, as if I had the equivalent of a hangover after drinking. Being overtired is kind of the same thing as being drunk, as we were to discover again and again throughout the weekend. I knew everyone else would sleep in until at least noon. What in the world had come over us? I didn't really want to face Cheetah after our interactions the night before. I felt shy and embarrassed. I felt the need to leave, to just get out of there, put some space between us. So at long last, I ran around the living room looking for paper, which neither catnip nor cheetah seemed to possess, and eventually settled on a paper plate. 
I wrote a little message on it and left it on the kitchen counter. Then I snuck out mid-morning, fleeing the scene. To be continued. This is a very long journal entry about 4th of July weekend, and there is much more to say. But we will leave it there for now. And thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.